And now it's time for the Fiasco Family Movie Night. Hello, and welcome again to the Fiasco Family Movie Night. I'm Sean Frost. And I'm Tim Lenner. And this time out, we're going to take a look in the Wayback Machine. We're going to the silent era for 1924's Waxworks. Directed by Leo Berinsky and Paul Lenny, and written by Henrik Galeen. Tim, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit of what it's about? A young man answers a job ad at a wax museum to write stories to explain what's going on with the figures in in one of the galleries. The stories he tells are dramatized one after the other. That's right, kids. It's an anthology film from 1924. The silent adventures unspool before the audience, with the poet seeing himself as the hero and the museum owner's daughter as the love interest in the following tales. In the first story, a poor but honest baker must deal with the drawbacks of his low station in life, as well as his wife Zara's frustration with his working hours and low pay. To make things worse, the sultan, who has a concubine for every night of the calendar year, has been tipped off that Zara is a total babe. The sultan makes his way to the baker's home to attempt to seduce Zara. While, while he plans to add Zara to his harem, the baker has plans to steal the sultan's magic wishing ring. The wax duplicate of the sultan gets its arm chopped off, and the real one is restored to life by Zara, who hid the man in the baker's oven when hubby came home unexpectedly. Another quick wish on the false stone makes Zara's husband the official court baker, and everything turns out pretty much okay. The second tale of Ivan the Terrible proceeds thusly. In Moscow, the Tsar and his court poison mixer have a favored routine for getting rid of people that the Tsar wants dead. An hourglass is inscribed with the condemned person's name, and they're given a toxin that kills them just as the final grain of sand falls to the bottom of the glass. It turns out that the kind of person that has a court murderer is very worried about having his own name put on an hourglass, and Ivan the Terrible decides that his official poisoner needs to go. Having figured out that a paranoid tyrant is not a very good boss to work for, the poisoner <laughs> inscribes the Tsar's names on an hourglass. A convenient wedding for Ivan to attend gives him an opportunity to have a body double dressed like him, and the poor sucker gets sniped by an archer. Being an insane tyrant, Ivan the Terrible takes the bride and groom away from their wedding and hightails it back to his palace. There, he sees the hourglass with his own name on it and goes insane, turning it over again and again to keep the last grain of sand from falling. The final story is only about five minutes long. It is about the statue of Jack the Ripper coming to life and stalking the poet and the museum owner's daughter through the fairground. Suddenly, the poet wakes up and discovers it was all a dream. Even in 1924, audience had to think that was a ripoff. <laughs> Even in 1924, audiences had to think that was a ripoff. Also, Springheeled Jack should have done much more leaping. Why did you put this one in the hopper, Sean? I really love the ambition of this one. Um, you know, it's, it's the earliest 
anthology I've seen, um, which isn't to say it's the earliest. I mean, there's a, a lot of other films that yeah. have there's, a kind of rapper story, including the the whole it was all a dream framework. There's 30 years of cinema before this got made, which is, you know, today's mind blow. Yeah, right? Um, and But it's the earliest anthology film I've seen uh, that you could clearly call an anthology film. And uh, it's a genre that I absolutely love. Uh, it's also very clearly, you know, there's a tendency to call anything made in Germany during the Weimar era uh, a uh, German expressionist work. Uh, this one actually is um, expressionism. Uh, so that's really cool. It's got actors that I love from the era. Um, and uh, I should clarify actors whose performances I love from <laughs> from the era. We'll get back to that later. But People from the 20s being problematic? Say it ain't so. I know. Actors from the actors from in Germany in the in the 20s who turned out to be awful human beings. <laughs> no. <laughs> but yeah, I just there's a lot to love about it, I think. Um uh, it's it's a gorgeous gorgeous print. Uh, that Kino uh, restored. Uh, they've got, uh, it, there's just so colorful. Uh, the tinting on it is amazing. So it's, it's a good film to, to show horror fans, I think, that to demonstrate that, like, look, color was a thing. Like, mm -hmm. this isn't one of the ones that's like stenciled. So that, you know, each figure has its own color. It's, it's basically just a wash, um, uh, for each section of the film, but it adds so much. A lot of these films come off so dull because all we have are, you know, black and white safety prints. And if you could see the col rich colors in them, yeah, they're really amazing. So oh, yeah. yeah, and even with it just being the wash, like some of it was indoors, outdoors, or daytime, nighttime, even within the individual segments. So it wasn't just all yellow all the time, all green all the time, that, that it was being used to communicate some information. Yeah. And, you know, you know, you even get the blue for night. Um, <laughs> yeah, this may here. be the earliest blue for night. <laughs> oh, they, yeah, they had pretty quickly settled on blue for night <laughs> with, mm. uh, with color tinting. Um, but I really loved the contrast of, you know, the feel of everything in town, uh, in that first segment. You know, the difference between the, the very warm yellow of being out in the, the daytime heat versus, you know, the chilly uh, blue of night. Uh, it, it really, you know, you can feel it um, in a way that you don't really expect out of, out of a silent film. I, I got this in a set of uh, German expressionist films that, uh, that Kino Lorber put out. And, um, 
I had no idea what to even expect. I was like, oh, God, a wax museum movie. And I put it in. And I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, the rapping story is kind of meh. But... <laughs> and that final segment just... Wow. Uh, I'm I'm not surprised that it's only a few minutes long. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and that one, I remember that having some really nice, like, close-in camera work during the pursuit, where, you know, you want those facial expressions to pop when people are worried. Yeah, and you really, you you think, you know, before I started getting into to silent movies, you know, I just had this this image of, oh, yeah, you know, the silent era, that's when you just planted the camera and you act you know, acted out little plays in front of it. So, uh, sure. Some of it. <laughs> uh, there was a lot of, of really good camera work in this. There's, uh, a lot more than you expect with that. Some fantastic editing and the layering in that final segment. I, I, I think that, you know, uh, we already talked about uh, one Paul Lenny film for uh, Hubris Ween, Cat and the Canary. Right. And the overlay effects in this, which are, I think this was something like six or seven years before that. Yeah, it, it, at least, well, Cat and the Canary was what, 28? So yeah, half a decade, give or take. Yeah. Like, it's just astonishing how how well done because it's not just like one or two layers it it was really piled on for mm -hmm. for i mean it was it was some avant-garde filmmaking <laughs> right there and, and definitely more experimental and more out there than the entire rest of the movie i mean yeah they had like you, you know big sets and lavish costumes and things like that but yeah that that final five or six minutes of spring-heeled Jack or possibly Jack the Ripper, uh, you know, the figure coming after them was more openly fantastical and more, more openly experimental than anything else. It was just, it was extremely striking. And it, it, and so disorienting, like you really got the feeling that, they were trying to convey with it of the paranoia and right. panic and disorientation and, and fear. Hey, everybody pause the podcast. Go watch that segment. Come on back. <laughs> yeah. You can probably find that, you know, that segment on YouTube and just, <laughs> and just enjoy. There's more that Waxworks has in common with modern filmmaking than it does with filmmaking from 20, 30 years prior to it. I mean, it's, it shows the kind of rapid development and, uh, you know, of what would become the filmic style, uh, the filmic language and, uh, I think Lenny is a master of it. Uh, he has some of the most accessible and dynamic, uh, movies of the twenties. 
uh, and uh, it's a it's a damn shame that um, he did not, in fact, make it out of the era alive. Um, uh, Cat in the Canary was his second to last movie. I'll I'll talk about a contemporary of Lenny's later, who, you know, was going thriving up through the sixties. Um, so you know, it's uh, it's it's just it's sad to me that such a great uh, filmmaker didn't uh, get to show off what he could do uh, with the changed rules. You know, add in add in color film stock, add in um, you know. Widescreen composition and sync sound and hell, yeah. make him work with William Castle so we can get smell vision and uh, <laughs> feel around and sensorama, atomo vision, nice. <laughs> rumble rama. So uh, it's been a while. Maybe we should talk more about the movie itself again. Um, oh, what did you <laughs> maybe? But before we do that, I did. I did want to mention one other thing, sure. which is that it's it's got at least a dash of metatextuality to it, in that the poet writing the stories sees himself as the hero because it's not the poet; it's an actor playing the poet, and the same actor can be anybody in the movie. Mm-hmm. Because it's just a movie and they're just filming people on these, you know, sound stages and elements that they put together to make it. And you put, you put one costume on the guy and he's a poet looking for a job writing stories to go with the diorama at a theme park wax museum. And then you change things around a little bit and he's a baker who thinks he could be a king. And you change things around again, and he's a young noble being tortured by a, a tyrannical madman. And then change it again, and he is, you know, living living a nightmare, and then realizing that he it was just a nightmare. And and although I realize it was just a dream, is still the most bogus of endings. Yeah, uh, I I do like the metatextuality there as well. That it it was just a story. Oh, well, just a story and part of another story. Okay, yeah. well, it's part of a story in another story that he was telling about other stories. That it's it's very, it's layered in a way like, uh, you know, speaking of, of Singing in the Rain, like I was joking earlier, where I, the first time I saw it, I said, you know, were they allowed to make something this metatextual and self-referential in 52? <laughs> well, now we've gone back to what, 24? Yep. And there's still these elements of fictive interplay within the frame. Yeah. Uh, which is always a delight. And, and in that one, especially in that segment, um, as much as I hate the it was a dream uh, uh, cliche, which was cliche even by then, um, it kind of works. Because that one is so short and so nightmarish. Yes. That I think it's earned that that one was a dream. Yeah, that, it's a it's a fitting explanation for it turned out to all be a dream. Yeah. I mean, you've got a real incoherent breakdown of reality going on in that one, which is part of why I love it. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's some good stuff. Since I chose the movie, let's start with you. What was your favorite <laughs> segment, and what do you think was the best executed segment? Huh. Well, they, they could be the same, <laughs> right? Right. I'm 
I watched this like two and a half weeks ago. So now I'm trying to think of like individual cuts and sequences that I liked. Mm. I'm going to say that my favorite segment was the, the one about the baker and the Sultan. Mm, okay. Because that one, like he's, he's given a pretty unreasonable demand for it where he says, Oh uh, yeah, the arm fell off of our Sultan statue. So write a story about it. <laughs> And this guy's thinking, this job interview sucks. <laughs> but over the course of the story, it turns out that the Sultan has a wax figure in his bed as assassin bait. So when the, the baker hacks the arm off of that and carries it back to make a wish on the wishing ring in front of his wife, like it's an explanation for why the figure is also missing an arm now. <laughs> Speaking of, of interplay of metatextuality. Exactly. Now it's, it's not just right. a, a figure of the Sultan. It's the figure it's of the, the very Sultan. figure the Sultan used to foil his own assassination. There's a lot of great carnyism in that story. Yes. There's, there's a lot of ballyhoo in that. And considering that it is, it's a, you know, it's an amusement park where people go to be told these sorts of things and, <laughs> And, you know, go with your girl and hear the stories of these things and walk through the museum of death and whatever. And yeah, it's tawdry and it's grease paint and it's all these things. But what's more real, the light hitting the spangle or the reflected sparkle from it? The performance that Emil Jannings gives here is so wonderful and hammy and joyful. Uh, although, you know, uh, I think I liked the costumes a lot better in the Ivan the Terrible one. Mm. Like those just, I, I just kept thinking, wow, seeing that 45 feet tall must have been amazing. Uh, oh, and there's this great shot where it's sort of the, and the censors didn't notice, but check <laughs> out the sword handle on the Sultan as he's walking in and looking at Zara. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, <laughs> uh, I I do love watching Channings. I really, really <laughs> do. He was having all the fun. If if you ever watch uh if you ever watch Murnau's Faust, he is so amazing as uh Mephistopheles. Um oh. Another hammy villain. Well, yes, that's probably neat. He's yeah, he is amazingly over the top and I love it. <laughs> I am here for this. He was the first uh, best actor Oscar winner. Oh, uh, fantastic. There's a uh, I still need I still want to see the movie he got it for. I forget what it is offhand. It was Wings because Wings is the only movie I know that won at the first Oscars. <laughs> It wasn't that. It was uh, it was something he was grandfatherly uh in. Okay. Um but uh there are rumors uh because there are always rumors. Yeah. That it was actually Rintin Tin that won. <laughs> and they decided they couldn't give it to a dog, so they gave it to second place. The dog would would have been able to renegotiate its contract. <laughs> and and it is it is BS. Like it's been debunked. But I think that the reason yeah. that the rumor took off is not only because it's funny in the first place, 
but because Emil Jennings um, went back to Germany and joined the Nazi party. <laughs> oh, so yeah. Let's give, let's retroactively say that a dog beat him for an Oscar. Yep. <laughs> Fair enough. I say give it to Rintintin retroactively. <laughs> I, I did mention earlier that I am an unreliable narrator. <laughs> uh, speaking of that sort of thing, did you ever read a short story by Alfred McClelland Barrage named The Waxwork? I haven't. I don't think I've ever read any waxwork stories. Okay, because I read this one in an anthology when I was in, I don't even remember, fifth grade. Again, unreliable narrator. Uh, <laughs> where it's about a journalist who spends the night in the Chamber of Horrors in a wax museum and basically hallucinates the figures coming to life to kill him and scares himself to death. And I thought, oh, man, that... This this movie we're going to be watching, it has to be a ripoff of that. And it can't be because the story came out in 1931. <laughs> Which, in a roundabout sort of way, shows what I know. <laughs> but I did want to mention it because uh, it was on my mind. Well, there's another rumor around this movie uh, in particular that uh, not just someone in it, that Fairbanks based his version of the Thief of Baghdad on uh, oh. on this segment, and given the timing, it's more than unlikely. <laughs> 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 but you know that that's what you're gonna get. <laughs> eh, you know, people gonna talk. People gonna say uninformed things about art. Now. My my favorite segment was uh, the Ivan the Terrible. I think that it was the best uh, horror narrative of them. Um, oh, yeah. That uh, it didn't achieve the most, you know, terror. That that actually, I think the best realized one is the final segment with Spring Hill Jack. I think that... Uh, they took several risks with that, and it really paid off. But it really wasn't a narrative so much as a you know pure expression. Yes. <laughs> um, I really, really loved the Ivan the Terrible segment. Um, Conrad Veed is one of my favorite actors uh, of the era, and um, you know most. Most listeners, even if they don't know the name, have seen him. He's extremely famous as the somnambulist in Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. So you have seen him, arms outstretched, all dressed in black. Looking like um, Robert the, Smith of the Cure. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, uh, it's, I, I would also say you've probably seen him because he was Major, Major Strasser in Casablanca. Yes. Veed is also uh, very recognizable um, in a way that you might not expect uh, in in modern culture um, as uh, his grin as Gwynplaine in The Man Who Laughs is the direct inspiration for the Joker. Uh, so yeah, you've you've seen that smile. You know who it belongs yes. to. And that was yes, another indeed. Lenny film. Um, in that same set. <laughs> well, there you go. 
Uh, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I love Conrad Veet so much and I, um, I, I, you know, loved the narrative structure of that story. Um, you mentioned the costuming that was great as well. Um, that one just really, I enjoy all three segments. That one felt to me most like approaching what we would now think of as horror or at yeah, least and- leading towards the the Corman Poe era of horror. Right. That very style. Oh, yeah. So many of the Corman Poe things have a nobleman, you know, messing with people because he can until he can't. Uh, yeah. And just yeah, that and- turning over and turning the hourglass over and over to extend his life. Um, I, I got to ask, why didn't he just tip it on its side? <laughs> he was ter- Ivan the Terrible, not Ivan the Genius. <laughs> yeah, not Ivan the, the uh, works things through to their logical conclusion from first principles. Got it. <laughs> just so I think, saying. Like, maybe like, he like, needed a film class from EMU. <laughs> Dr. Aldridge would have set him up. We we all need that, Tim. We all do. <laughs> so like a lot of uh anthologies, um, you know, it's it's a crapshoot of a genre. <laughs> and you're gonna get the scary ones and you're gonna now, get this the one, stylish this ones. This one didn't have the crap. It it was a crapshoot without the crap. Because almost all of these Almost every anthology movie, especially when they kind of got codified by Amicus into this is how you do this. Uh, you know, there's almost always that one segment where you're like, whoa, really? But this one didn't have that. Thinking of Creep Show and the, the Stephen King one man show where he turns into a plant guy. <laughs> like that one, the silly one is usually the one I don't particularly care for. And this one didn't have the silly one uh dead of night the one from 46 in the uk Mm -hmm. uh i don't recall that one having a particularly comedic segment to it um where you know if if they do the silly one usually i find that to disrupt them didn't that have the golfing one Oh, it did. That's yeah. right, because I remember being stunned that I actually found this, the funny one funny. Yeah, and that was the same thing here. Like, they led right off with the funny. Yeah. And it... But that one was so exoticized and so, you know, the, the foreign ways of the mysterious Middle East that I, I think that papered over the, the fact that it was the funny one. And the fact that it was genuinely funny. Mm-hmm. Like... It, it wasn't trying too hard. It was trying just hard enough. Yes. And there was legitimate threat because it's not that, that uh, the Sultan was a grinning goofball. The Sultan was an unpredictable guy yes. who could be yes. a grinning goofball or could go into a rage coronary because he lost it. Chess. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, some of that, I didn't it even say, like, and then he never played chess again after that or something. Yes, the wrap-up! Yeah. <laughs> well, the Sultan realized that he almost got burnt alive in a bread oven because he was macking on somebody's wife, and then he was given a perfectly fine way to get out of it, dignity intact, 
and be uh, like sort of just saying like, well, I guess I've appeared here out of nowhere then and then <laughs> walked right out of the room. So good. So it good. is. Everything, everything fits together like clockwork in that one. I, I really enjoyed the way all of that fit together. Uh, and, and it turns out to be like, and here's a fable of a, of a man who learned he didn't have all the power he thought he did. And another man who never learned that he didn't have the power he thought he did. <laughs> and his wife got to be rich and see him more often at the end. Yeah. <laughs> and things worked out pretty much okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, there's now a here's Joe Lansdale book where, to terrify you. Yeah, now, now, now the terror. Uh, there's a Joe Lansdale book where somebody finds a paperback with like the last two pages missing. So they just wrote in on the, that cover. He rode off into the West and everything was okay. And that's all the ending you get. <laughs> so yeah, we've, uh, we've, largely discussed the uh the largely great movie uh do you want to turn on the 1924 model projector so that we can also do some film clips sure let me put on my asbestos suit <laughs> <laughs> let me do a bunch of over-the-counter cocaine and then let's <laughs> let's do this this segment seal myself into the the uh immolation booth there for the viewer's protection <laughs> Luna Park, the setting for the wraparound segments, was the largest amusement park in Europe. It was in operation in Berlin from 1909 to 1933, although it was shut down for the duration of the First World War. Vincent Price and Christopher Lee shared a birthday on May 27 while Peter Cushing's was one day earlier on May 26th. One year, the trio were all filming in London and had a triple birthday party at Madame Tussaud's Wax Museum. Specifically, it was held in the Chamber of Horrors. <laughs> because, of course, it was. <laughs> yeah, uh, Mike Bakovin of Atomic Weight of Cheese said that was one of his time machine destinations, was to crash <laughs> that particular party. Wax museums were a popular setting for horror films. House of Wax, featuring Vincent Price from 1953, was loosely remade in 2005. The Vincent Price film was itself a remake of 1933's Mystery of the Wax Museum. Additionally, 1988's Waxwork is an anthology horror film set in a cursed wax museum where people who enter the exhibits are killed by the trapped souls of the evildoers whose crimes are immortalized in the tableau, and which features David Warner as evil Willy Wonka. So really, see it if you haven't. <laughs> it's fun. It's a, it's a neat film. Werner Krauss and Conrad Veet played Jack the Ripper and Ivan the Terrible in this movie. They were Dr. Caligari and Cesar in The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. There was originally supposed to be a fourth story included called Rinaldo Rinaldini, but the film's budget ran out before it could be shot. And yeah, if you look carefully, there are four wax figures in the room, and he only writes about three of them. And it's interesting because, like, you feel a little odd because you've got two stories about historical rulers. 
and then one about a, a guy with a shiv. Yeah, so, and one, one about a guy with a dagger. <laughs> so I was like, huh. Yeah. Well, not only that, but uh, uh, the first two stories are like 35 minutes long, and the <laughs> second one is like six and a half. So the pacing is turbo weird. <laughs> Some people like their segments longer. Some people like them shorter. Some people like quick resolutions. So, Tim, why are there so many films about waxworks? Uh, because they're creepy. Hell yeah. Uh, there, there's a phrase called the uncanny valley. That if something doesn't look particularly human at all, people are okay with it. And if something looks very close to human-like, they're okay with it. But between those two states, there's a chasm of something looking not quite right and not quite human. Uh, you can see it sometimes if uh, there's companies that have like mobile robots moving and they don't quite move like a person mm -hmm. or if you could see you know replicas of of people you know mannequins are a little creepy because they're close but really not that close to being a person to being a human and uh with the waxworks you can also it lets you basically tell a story set anywhere uh waxworks the the 1988 waxwork singular uh, has a mummy story, a werewolf story, a vampire story. It has, uh, references to slashers. Uh, there's a killer plant in it for a hot second. There's all sorts of different things going on in there. And it's because it's set at a waxwork. Every tableau can be a story. Uh, with this one, you know, we had tales of ancient Araby and then tales of feudal Russia. Yeah. And then tales of running like hell from somebody in the present day. Yeah. It could be any time, any place, even imaginary places. Right. Right. Uh, you can, uh, you know, the wax figures themselves can either just be the source of the story or in, in House of Wax, they are murder victims covered in wax to look like the tableau when the sculptor found that he can no longer sculpt. It also let the filmmakers do a special effect that they could have never gotten away with. Otherwise, uh, there's a fire in a wax museum in the beginning of House of Wax, and it shows all the features running, melting, dripping, and being destroyed. And it lets you understand that's also what happens to the Vincent Price character without doing like a full body rig on a stuntman and without doing some horrific, nasty work as as it happens mm -hmm. and then of course later on when he when the vincent price mask breaks you see what he looks like underneath it and it's not good news it rarely is when vincent price's masks break <laughs> right if, if vincent price is wearing a vincent price mask you just hope he keeps it on <laughs> But yeah, it's just one of those things. And I think some of it is also that horror movie fans, like horror filmmakers are usually fans of the genre. And if you're a fan of the genre, you know, the guy who made Waxwork in 88 was calling back to 53 and 33 and 24 and that short story I told you about and a mm -hmm. bunch of other things. 
Uh, I know he said in an interview that the vampire story in there was like his hammer tribute segment. And there was another one that was, you know, more of a body horror thing. And there's one of them that was more historical and that kind of, and then you've got David Warner tying it all together. Well, and you get that, you know, to, to twist it in another angle, you not only get the, the exotic settings um, and, and, imaginary settings and all of that as worlds you can inhabit or people can come out of. But you also have the accoutrement lying around. Like a lot of these stories, a lot of the attractions are violent in nature. There are, you know, murder victims and, you know, axes and guillotines and those things can suddenly become very real and be used against you. So it's a, you know, it's a very evocative setting. Um, like, you know, like you said, you're creeped out because there are human figures that aren't quite human, but they could come alive. Anything could be used or, against you. Or somebody may simply think they came alive. Right. I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that at least one Jallo film takes place in part in a wax museum. Oh, it has to. If it doesn't, I want my money back for the entire genre. Right? I mean, how could you pass that up? Right. <laughs> and there's also on, the possibility of hiding. Like, you know, you can you can try to make out that you're part of an exhibit. Right. Um, you know, it's it's full of possibilities and uh and very cinematic possibilities. There's a lot you can do with the setting. You can there's a lot you can do with it just with the lighting. Make it shadowier and and deeper and it looks like, you know, those figures may well be ready to move. Mm -hmm. You can suggest something about to happen just by controlling the way the audience looks at it. And and you know, it it's yeah, you can set it anywhere and do anything with it. You're right. There's there's just a lot you can do with that. And then sometimes there's also a big tank of molten wax to dump the villain into at the end. Yes. <laughs> As per usual. <laughs> it's just going to happen. Roll with it. <laughs> at least, you know, roll with it until you are submerged in boiling wax. <laughs> Well, it's time for one of our other return segments. As we edit the first episode of our new season, we're preparing to discuss another movie, one in which the protagonist's imagination drives the plot. What's your recommendation for a film that fits that description? Bill Smiley gives us Extro, where an alien hybrid child winds up with the ability to manifest his thoughts in the real world, with fatal results for some secondary characters. I still need to see this one. <laughs> yeah, it's, I did it for Hubris Ween a few years back. It's a grindhouse ripoff of E.T. And Holy it's crap. Icky. Yeah. <laughs> you should, why have you not already seen this? And then the I'm waiting for the Blu-ray box set. <laughs> uh, well, that's never going to happen because different companies had rights to the title and characters and sequel rights. Oh, crap. Yeah, unless, you know, Shout Factory or somebody gets on that. Uh, 
we are unlikely to ever see a box set. But that's okay because I've heard the sequels are they range from hot garbage to cold garbage. <laughs> Rich Conroy goes to the Paddington Two well again, plus Kung Fu Panda and a Christmas Story. Oh, charming! Yes, yeah. I haven't seen Paddington 2, but the other two are perfectly wonderful films. One of these days, we're going to have to watch Paddington 2. It's <laughs> well, just going to be a mini-sode of the Paddington movies. Like, yes, they are completely charming. Yeah, yes. not much else to say. Goodbye. Blip. <laughs> I'm sure they're great. I keep hearing yeah, good I, things. I, I not all no from Rich. I have in my mind that they are wonderful. <laughs> However, we still haven't seen them. Gavin R.R. R. Smith points out that Galaxy of Terror, Sphere, and Forbidden Planet all have roughly the same plot outline. <laughs> Give or take. I am the only person in the world who liked Sphere. Yeah, that story checks out. Aside I, from all the people who cashed checks. <laughs> I didn't care for the book, so I never saw the movie. But the movie does have a really good cast. And I should at least see it as a companion piece to Congo because it's the other all Michael Crichton movies will make or all Michael Crichton books will make great movies, won't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the problem with the psychological ending is that it doesn't work on film. No, you need to <laughs> need to do something else, something visual, please. Phil Skeltis has a one-two combo with Labyrinth and the Lego movie. I still haven't seen the Lego movie. It's uh, pretty damn good. Uh, I haven't seen the second one, but I did see that and Lego Batman. And Lego Batman has some astonishing DC Universe deep cuts and some really funny stuff uh, with how... You know, everything in it is a plastic brick or at least a CGI simulation of a plastic brick. Like they they really make use of every every type of Batman story it is possible to tell. And the fact that they're all little plastic figures eating little plastic lobsters. <laughs> uh, I, I think you would legit enjoy it in lots of ways. Britton Page wants to tell us about The Fall, which is, in her words, somehow both epic and understated. Yeah, have you seen that one? I don't know this one. Uh, Tarsum Singh, the guy who directed The Cell, did this over something like three years on four continents, where it's a story that someone's telling a little girl in a hospital and he's trying to get the girl to steal a bottle of morphine for him so he can kill himself because he broke his back and he's having a case of this despair. And as he's telling this story, bits and pieces of it to try and talk her into doing stuff, we see her imagination fill in the blanks and come up with the characters of of who all these people are and what they're doing. And like some stuff she doesn't understand. So the guy from India turns to be, you know, an Apache rather than a Hindu and that sort of thing. Hmm. Uh, I also remember Charles Darwin is one of the characters in the story for some reason. And there's, you know, epic battles and fencing fights and, and treachery and betrayal and uh, an evil prince and strange henchmen. And like some of the stuff she's imagining, she's also filling the blanks in from the radiation techs who work the x-ray machine at the hospital and that kind of thing. 
So it's it's a story that someone's being told under false pretenses that she doesn't understand well enough to get all of it. So it's sort of the interplay between her on her mind as like a six year old kid and this guy as a devious 35 year old stunt man with a broken spine. Wow. And then it, the, the locations it was shot on are all amazing. Well, that's going on the list. <laughs> yeah. I think you would, del- I think you would legit enjoy it. And if the Blu-ray is within 10 bucks of the DVD price, get the Blu-ray. Josh Shepard points out that in the never-ending story, the death of imagination is the villain. True. It's been a long time, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you read the book? No. It's in two fonts and two ink colors to do the fictional story and the real world, and then also to do, I believe, then and now. Hmm. Yeah. I read it when I was 13 or 14 and I was hugely impressed by that. Uh, I don't, I haven't read it since, but I remember it being really cool. Joel Ruggaber recommends The Secret Life of Walter Mitty with Danny Kaye. There's a remake where Walter Mitty actually has lots of adventures and I'm not certain he could misunderstand the source material more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the not so secret uh. life. But yeah, oh, Danny yes. Kay's a delight. The secret life of totally awesome things happening to the dude is completely at right angles to the material. I haven't yeah. seen the original movie, so for all I know, that's it happens there as well. No, uh, it's no. <laughs> Good, excellent. Uh, Tim Girolami has Heavenly Creatures as his only title. Tim, you all right? <laughs> <laughs> And lastly, Hillary Braley goes with Mirror Mask. Oh, yes. Ah, okay. Yeah. Oh, yes. Very much a a kind of uh, dark fantasy there. Yes. Yeah. The daydreams of somebody who's not having a good time of it. <laughs> Maybe don't watch that one in the hell year of 2020. <laughs> so, Tim, do you have a movie? Yes, I do. But first, there's a couple that didn't come up that I'm a little surprised. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping neither of these was your choice, but Better Off Dead and UHF have lots of daydreaming sequences that, you know, the, the protagonist needs to stop living in his head and get into the real world. Yeah. 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 But the one I wanted to mention is The Devils. Because there's a nun locked up in a convent who gets one look at Oliver Reed as he walks past the window and, you know, falls instantly and totally in obsessive love with him, which I imagine happened to the real guy a lot, too. But her fantasy version of him and how he how she imagines he would treat her lead to the entire plot of the film, basically the entire second and third act. And they never speak. They never meet. He never has any idea who she is. But her her view of him that has been twisted and deformed by her place in society and how society has treated her 
and how she imagines the only way things can go are the ways that they already have gone uh, lead to everything that happens in that film. And I'm, I'm being a little vague because I've got that one in the hopper for this year. Oh, there's a lot to unpack in that one. <laughs> there really is. Yeah, and it's a Ken Russell-Oliver Reed joint. So, yes. I, you know, I have the feeling you're going to like that one. <laughs> or at so, the very least, you're going, to have, you're going to extract value from it. Signs point to yes. <laughs> yeah. What about you? Do you have a an imagination heavy film? I do. I do. Um I went a lot further ahead. Uh nineteen twenty six. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> This is the imaginary voyage. Um, What's it about? <laughs> it's about a guy who has a dream. <laughs> oh, that old ending. Uh, this is written and directed by Rene Claire, uh, who might be best known nowadays for I Married a Witch. Oh. Um, a delightful uh, rom-com uh, with Veronica Lake. Uh, this is also a romantic comedy. Um, it centers on a uh, a clerk. We're not really sure. I think it's a bank. It's hard to tell. <laughs> um, he's just sort of a movie businessman. He's, yeah, he's, you know, low man in a movie business. And yes. uh, quite honestly, he looks like nobody that you would even want to be seen talking to. Like mm. he he looks like the kind of dork that the rest of us dorks are like you're too dorky you're you're bringing us down you're making us look bad <laughs> the other accountants <laughs> wanted me to tell you <laughs> but uh, you know he's pining for the secretary uh, as are all of the men in the office because it's a French film in 1926 and of course they are and well yeah. So it's largely one of those he falls asleep and resolves his shoes in his sleep kind of things. Ah. Uh, what makes it stand out for me is uh, a couple of things. Uh, one is that it's it's kind of delightful in that it's got two parts to the fantasy. So it's almost an anthology. Okay. Almost. Where the first part is that... Um, he winds up going into a fairy realm, uh, where there's a lot of, uh, great effects that, like, I'm positive this must have been stenciled. Unfortunately, I've only seen the black and white <laughs> safety print. Oh, okay. Because there is so much commotion and so much going on that, um, like, you you could not possibly expect people to 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 be able to focus on any of it without planning to you know color it all um so like lots of bizarre botany and architecture and you know uh, all kinds of whimsical sets uh there's a segment where you, in order to cross a room you have to crawl across the ceiling <laughs> oh 
Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, lots of lots of fun little film tricks. Um, you know, he has to go down the line of because the 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 woman who led him there, the fairy that led him there, was the old woman who he helped at the bank. Um, okay. Uh, he has to kiss a line of old wo- women and turn them all into young fairies, and okay. you know, so it's all you know. It's very like cringy. Uh, I think the first segment is like it's total cringe. <laughs> it's delightful, but it's cringe. What a ninety-year-old work of art! It looks kind of icky from today's eyes. <laughs> yeah, oh, the Ew, more so because the 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 conflict arises when once. He gets them to bring the secretary there, who, of course, in his fantasy world is in love with him. Um, one of the fairies gets jealous. And, of course, the one who gets jealous is the one in dark body paint. Uh... So there's some of that going on. Now, I don't know. She may have been tinted purple for all I know. <laughs> yeah. But still, you're going for this one is darker than the others, and that dark equals evil. And yeah, it's it's kind of icky. Um, what I really love about it, though, is the second segment, where after um, after we go through some uncanny valley stuff, where uh, the love interest has been turned into um, a it's been a week since I've seen it. I can't remember exactly what she was. I think she was turned into a rabbit, possibly okay. a, a mouse. It was a mouse. Uh, once uh, she's turned into a mouse, then this like child in the world's most, that is not what a cat looks like. Cat <laughs> uh, costume is chasing her all over the place. Okay. Um, so after, you know, he has to save her from that. And then they leave, but the curse as they're leaving is that he gets turned into the office dog. Uh. So then there are, there's a, a rampage through Paris, the streets of Paris, as, um, you know, they're trying to save him, the dog. So I thought that inversion of the hero needs to be saved it was a pretty awesome That's twist pretty on cool. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but what really cinched it for me uh, is to, to, to talk about uh, for in particular for this, uh, this episode is that when he's a dog, he enters a wax museum <laughs> And, and the wax figures start moving. (laughs) Well, there you go. And it is some. It all ties back together. Doesn't it? All comes back. (laughs) Like, I don't think that this was as technically well achieved as, as Waxworks was. Um, uh, it's certainly very enthusiastic. And, um, you know, I have to say, like, you know, it's much earlier in Renee Claire's career than Waxworks was in Paul Lenny's. Um, <laughs> but, like, um, just the fact of that segment 
and and that segment being so creepy and you know like you've got figures that have axes in their heads rising up oh, and coming wow. after them and you know it's if if only for that scene it is so worth a look <laughs> i can dig it Sean, hmm? did I get the job? Did you? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Tim, you told us a little bit about uh, all of these wax figures, and uh, I want to say that uh, you don't get the job, uh, mm. and we won't be paying you, but we're going to use the copy you wrote. I, You um, know, I should have seen it coming. Yep. So, better luck next time. Thank um, you, yes. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's uh, let's see what's what we're in for next time. Yeah, what what totally random selection that somehow is your movie again? Has the randomizer got for us? I, I come on, it's, we've got to hit one of yours. The odds are really starting to favor hitting one of yours. Well, eventually you're just going to have to watch seven or eight of mine in a row, and it's just going to be because <laughs> the randomizer put it that way, isn't it? <laughs> okay, randomizer. Tell us what we're doing. I'm sorry. Maybe I'll give you the job. <laughs> Which it's one? Not, it's not just one of mine. It's probably one of the two you're least looking forward to. Okay. And, and it's not the one with zombies. <laughs> it's Hudson uh... Hawk. <laughs> Of course it is. But in in all seriousness, all I know about this movie is that it has a terrible reputation with 98% of the people who've even heard of it, let alone watched it. But I gotta say, like, you didn't despise Streets of Fire, right? No. No, yeah, I was it, okay I'm, with it, and I've actually come yeah. to really enjoy it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm wondering if this is one of those things where it's just most people cannot get this, but the ones who do certainly enjoy it. So I'm hoping it's Bruce Willis's Streets of Fire. And it's got Danny Aiello in it. I mean, you can't go Danny wrong with Danny Aiello. Uh, this is, no kidding, one of my favorite Sandra Bernhardt performances. Okay. Um, And if you can get into... A movie that understands that it's a Sandra Bernhardt vehicle with Bruce Willis in it. Ah. <laughs> like, it's, and I don't mean like she has more screen time. I mean, this is kind of a demented movie. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is not something that you like show to the squares. <laughs> <laughs> go on it's it's redonkulous and it knows that it is and okay. that makes it a delight <laughs> i'm looking forward to it so uh you have we have that to look forward to until then thank you for listening to this episode of fiasco family movie night if you like our podcast please tell your movie fan friends about us however you can 
The Fiasco family is part of the Megaphonic Network, and you can find us at megaphonic.fm slash fiasco, alongside other fancy podcasts, such as A Part of Our Scaritage, which plums the depths of Canadian horror movies. We're also at facebook.com slash fiascobrotherspodcast, because they won't let us change the name, and on Twitter as at fiascofamilypod. If you enjoy the show, consider donating to our Patreon for a dollar a month to get exclusive mini-episodes. Also on our Patreon for free, totally boss discussions cut from some existing episodes, and the Hubris Ween content, 26 horror movie reviews in alphabetical order every October. That's at patreon.com slash fiascobrothers, because they wouldn't let us change it, <laughs> or support the network at patreon.com slash megaphonic. Both options support us, get you access to bonus content, and can get you an invite to a members-only Slack to hang out with all the megaphonic hosts. We'll see you again in a few weeks on our next episode. And again, thank you for listening. We're getting out of the reason to include it and into um, a semi-recurring segment I like to call Sean Gushes about the history of film. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> Does that have a sub-theme? Can we, can we talk to Chris? <laughs> we'll see if he can come up with something. If, if it really should sound like people groaning, <laughs> if at all possible. Yes. Yes, Tim, he's a genius. Please play something else, you say? <laughs> Sean's back on their bullshit. <laughs> <laughs>